good to look out over the audience this morning and see so many wonderful smiling faces. I know the weather is beautiful and many of you are excited about the prospects of the fall season. And uh, it's a great day, as Larry said, to gather here to worship God and to study His Word. For 18 Sundays, we studied the book of Ephesians. We tried to study it as an expository series of lessons. That is, we let the text drive our study of God's Word. I decided following that that I would preach another series of lessons on the book of Philippians. And this series of lessons I have entitled, Down by the Riverside. And as we study through this lesson, I think you will see why this has application to the lesson that we're going to study today. This is an introductory lesson. It's not necessarily going to follow the text of Philippians as we did in Ephesians, but we will begin that, Lord willing, next Sunday morning as we continue in this series of lessons. Let me begin by introducing this lesson. The book of Philippians is one of Paul's prison epistles. And when I was typing this out this last week for the slide, I thought that probably does not relate to many of our young people. First of all, we don't use the word prison as much as we do in the South, the word jail. Nor do we use the word epistle for letter. We simply say a letter from jail rather than a prison epistle. Paul wrote four letters while he was in that Roman jail or Roman prison. He wrote them to the Ephesians, to the Colossians, to the Philippians, and to Philemon. And these letters reflect what was going on with Paul and what was going on in those churches and with that individual to whom he wrote. Each letter has a unique purpose. When we talked about the book of Ephesians, we said the theme of that book was the church of Christ with the emphasis on the word church. When you study the book of Colossians, you understand that it emphasizes the Christ of the church. And this book of Philippians was written to emphasize joy and happiness. If you will notice with me, Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I will say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving... Let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your minds and your hearts, or your hearts and your minds, through Christ Jesus. So many times we don't understand the place of joy. In fact, sometimes people have had their joy robbed from them as a Christian. There are other people who have allowed things to be impressed upon them that they no longer can have a smile on their face and a joy in their heart. And it's my conviction that the book of Philippians is good for us 
so that you and I can have that right attitude of heart, even in the face of some difficult circumstances. Some fail to grasp that real joy can be taken by, real joy cannot be taken by difficult circumstances. And the best illustration that I can give you is Paul and Silas, while they're at Philippi, the prisoners, they are in there with them. They have been beaten by rods. They have suffered shameful treatment. And according to 1625, but at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. This morning, I'd like for us to look at three things. I'd like for us to look at the city. I'd like for us to look at the conversions. And then finally, the church, as we prepare to study this great book of God. Let's begin with the city. And I think a general background of the city will give you a clearer picture about why we see what we see in the book of Philippians. Many times when we read a book, if we don't understand the recipients, who's getting that book, we can't appreciate all the things that go along with it. Some of the things that we will observe are contained in Acts 16. Some of the things we will observe are historical records, things that you can learn about the city. When we think about its physical background, the city was originally known as Crinides, and that means small springs or simply the springs. In and around this area, there are numerous springs that come up out of the ground and form little streams. They form little rivers, if you will. And then as you go a little bit further, you notice that the location is about 10 miles inland from Neapolis. Neapolis is the port city where Paul will arrive at. It is in a fertile valley, very fertile, that is many crops can be grown there. And it is also filled or was filled with gold and silver mines. Going back many hundred years B.C., this city was known for having the gold and the silver in this area. But perhaps for the value of studying it and its historical context, it was on what was known as the Ignatian Way. And I will give you a map to give you some kind of idea if you look in the upper right-hand corner of the screen, you will see that there's a red arrow pointing to Neapolis and Philippi. You can see it's very near the coastline. When Paul made his journey from Troas, which would be in the area of western Turkey today, he sailed to Neapolis. If you will observe, there's a little yellow line that goes from the right-hand side to the left-hand side. And that it goes through that northern part of what is today the country of Greece. That represents this Ignatian Way. It is a major highway. It was their interstate, if you will, for Rome to be able to go to the east and for things from the east to be taken to Rome. If you will notice on the screen in front of you, there is a photo of Neapolis today. Therefore, sailing from Troas, we ran a straight course towards Samothrace, and the next day to Neapolis, Acts 16, verse 11. If you will observe there on the lower left-hand corner, there is the 
Ignatian Way, that paved road that was there by the Romans. If you come to the city of Philippi, you can still observe this paved street. We tend to think, when we think of the people in Bible times, that they all walked on dirt or grass pathways. But the truth is, the Romans had a very intricate road system. In fact, their roads were many times much better than ours because these roads are still surviving 2,000 plus years later. I'll give you a little bit of the political background because that is important too in understanding what Luke will tell us. While gold was found there, Philip of Macedon, who was the father of Alexander the Great, around 385 B.C. established an outpost of Macedonians to protect these gold and silver mines. In other words, he brought people in to settle it so that the mines would be protected. When the city was brought under Roman rule in 168 B.C., and there was a famous battle fought there in the valley next to Philippi. You have Mark Antony and Octavian, or also known as Augustus, mentioned in the Bible, on one side fighting Brutus and Cassius, and uh, they fought that great battle there, and uh, Mark Antony and Augustus were the ones who prevailed there in 42 B.C., if you will look in front of you, you will notice that valley. You can see how fertile it is. And at the bottom, you will see the remnants or the ruins of the city of Philippi. We read further, according to Luke in Acts 16 and verse 12, that it was a Roman colony. And from there to Philippi, which is the foremost city of that part of Macedonia, a colony. And we were staying in that city for some days. You might say, well, what's the significance of saying that it was a colony? Well, what had taken place is that Rome had taken many of their soldiers and had transplanted them to Philippi. In fact, records record that over 500 soldiers were brought here because they were promised land in Italy and it was not available. So they were brought here to this beautiful valley and they settled there. It was a retirement area for loyal soldiers. Because of that, because they were a Roman colony, they had all of the benefits of having self-government. They did not have to pay taxes to the emperor. And they had all the privileges of a city that would have been in the area of Italy or of Rome. And so being a Roman colony, they were special and you can see the effects of that as we read Acts chapter 16. Now that's the background of the city. Let me take you to the Bible now and let's talk about the conversions. And I think it's important as we prepare to study this that we see Paul's intent on this second missionary journey of his. He has arrived in this central Turkey area today and Paul has, according to Luke, gone through the region of Phrygia and the region of Galatia. And they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. After that, they had come to Mysia and tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit did not permit them. So passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas. If you're looking at a map, if you will, just for a moment, imagine 
Paul and Silas are going, and they're trying to turn north. And every time they try to turn north, the Holy Spirit says no. And thus they go west. They again try to turn north. And again the Holy Spirit says no. And they continue to go west until they come to the port city of Troas. Now you might wonder why Paul is, is here. Because the Spirit has driven him here. Then it is there that Paul receives what we refer to as the Macedonian call. Found in verses 9 and 10. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. And a man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. Now after he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia. Concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. You have to visualize in your mind what's going on with Paul here. The Spirit won't let us go north. The Spirit won't let us go north. And so when he arrives at Troas, he sees this vision. A vision is not just a dream. A vision is something that God put in Paul's mind. And from there, Paul concluded, we need to go to Macedonia. When he arrives in Macedonia, Paul does what he always does, and that is to attempt to go to the Jewish people first. We're going to notice that there is no synagogue in the city of Philippi. That tells you at least one thing. You had to have at least ten Jewish men to have a synagogue, so they don't have ten Jewish men. I would suggest to you later on, as they are arrested it is made clear that these are Jewish men and there have customs which the Romans did not appreciate. And so being a Jew in the city of Philippi may not have been a very great thing. When Paul arrives, he is going to go and convert this lady named Lydia. Let's read Luke's account. And on the Sabbath day, we went out of the city to the riverside where prayer was customarily made. And we sat down and spoke to the women who met there. Now a certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshipped God. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household were baptized, she begged us, saying, If you have judged me faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. So she persuaded us. I think it's interesting to notice here that as you read about Lydia, she is not a native of Philippi. She's a native of Thyatira. Folks, that's a long ways away. But she's a businesswoman. And she is here selling purple. I wonder why in Philippi to sell purple. But there are retired military people here. There are people who could afford some royal blessings here, if you would say that, of being able to buy this. She has a house here. But she is meeting by the riverside. She's gone down by the riverside. From the city of Philippi, about a half a mile away, is an area where... 
it is customary that people would meet to have some services. Now you might say, why did they go to the riverside? That's a simply a, a place to gather. Probably was not a good place to meet in the city, especially for these women. Paul knows where they're going to meet. They don't have a building, they just have a place. But the, the building is not important. The hearts of men is. And he reaches this lady, Lydia, and teaches her the truth. She is baptized, probably right there in that river beside where he taught her. And then they go to her house. The second convert I have listed on the screen is that of the jailer. That may not be correct. I don't know. Because in between Lydia and the jailer is another account. There's the account of a young woman who had in her an unclean spirit. It is called a spirit of divination. And what she would say as Paul and Silas and evidently Luke as well would go by, these are the men of most high God who are here to give us words of salvation. She did that for days. The text says Paul was annoyed by this. And he cast the spirit of divination out of this young lady. When that took place, the owners of her saw that she was no longer valuable to them. They were making money out of her, using her as a fortune teller. It's possible she may have been the second convert. The text just does not tell us. We do know that after that, though, Paul and Silas were arrested and that they were thrown in prison where they met a man who was a jailer. Let's begin reading in verse 25. But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately the doors were opened and everyone's chains were loosed. And the keeper of the prison, awakening from sleep and seeing the prison doors open, supposing the prisoners had fled, drew his sword and was about to kill himself. Paul called out with a loud voice saying, Do yourself no harm, for we are all here. And fell down, then he called for light, ran in and fell down, trembling before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? So they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour that night and washed their stripes. And immediately... He and all of his household were baptized. Now when he had brought them into his house, he set food before them and rejoiced, having believed in God with all of his household. You see, this man here, very likely, unaware of all that was going on except the fact that these men had been put in his prison, understood there was something about these men because he asked them, 
What must I do to be saved? Paul and Silas' answer was, Believe. And then the text goes on and says, They taught the word of the Lord to him, and he was baptized. So there was more to the message than just simply saying, Believe, because this man was baptized. There's no indication of any other, but many must have come shortly thereafter. And you can say, how do you know there's been more to come thereafter? Let me give you a few pictures to give you an idea of what's going on, and then we will uh, look at the church. The photo in front of you is the Crenides River. That's the one very likely where Lydia would have been baptized. You see in front of you the ruins of the city of Philippi. And if you notice right in the center is the area where the marketplace or the agora was at. According to Acts 16:19, they dragged them to the marketplace to the authorities. And when you go to verse 22, and when they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. There's a photo of the prison there in Philippi. If you go inside the prison, very much inside, the inner prison, you read in Acts 16.23, having received such a charge, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. It's very possible that this is the very cell that Paul would have been placed in when he was there. Let's look now very briefly at the church. When we conclude our reading of the church at Philippi in Acts 16, we come to verse 40 and it simply says this. So they went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia and when they had seen the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. You think about that. Paul comes to Philippi. He converts Lydia maybe converts the young lady. He converts the jailer and their households, and that's the church. A Jewish lady, probably a proselyte from another town. A Gentile man, the jailer, their households. Folks, that's the church. That's the church in Philippi. Yet ten years later, just ten years from this time, Paul writes the book of Philippians. And I want you to listen to Philippians 1, verse 1. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, with the bishops and deacons. He calls them saints. You know, I get amused sometimes when the television talks about somebody being made a saint. And they describe what the Catholic Church describes or participates in where, for instance, a person has to have died and they had to have seen uh, some sort of miracle performed or been a part of some sort of miracle and they had to have all these things to be made a saint. The word saint simply is holy one. And you can see that as Paul writes this letter, these people are not dead, they're alive. That's to whom he addresses the letter. 
In chapter 4, verses 21 and 22, Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those who are of Caesar's household. You, if you are a Christian, are a saint, a holy one. But then he says, with the bishops, the word bishop, the word pastor, the word elder, all refers to the same office. You go, for instance, to 1 Timothy 3, 1 and 2. This is a faithful saying. If a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. A bishop must then be blameless. The husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, apt to teach, or able to teach. And then he goes on to lift several other qualifications. Acts 20, verse 28, Paul said, Therefore take heed to yourselves and all the flock among which the Holy Spirit made you overseers. The word overseers there, same idea. And according to Acts chapter 20, he called for the elders of the church. So I want you to understand, ten years after that conversion, they've got elders. Then he says, with the bishops and deacons. The word deacon simply means to serve. But they're special servants. They're servants who are chose because they possess certain qualifications that you can depend on them to get a job done. You can give them a task and they take care of that task. They work under the direction of the elders. 1 Timothy chapter 3 beginning with verse 8. Likewise, deacons must be reverent, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy for money, holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. But let these first also be tested. Then let them serve as deacons being found blameless. I don't know about you, but that's an amazing thought of how fast that congregation developed. Every properly organized congregation will have the same pattern. When Paul wrote Titus, he told him in Titus 1 and verse 5, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking, and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. And then he goes on to describe the qualifications. You see, the, the point is, that's the way God wants his churches organized. And Philippi did that. Let me tell you something else that I observe about studying the church at Philippi. There were some great women in that church. Women who served. Women who accomplished great things. We all know about Lydia. But then you have Yodia and Syntyche. Philippians 4, verses 2 and 3, I implore Yodia and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. And I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. These are people who worked with Paul. They worked with him in the gospel, and their names are in the book of life. Yeah, they've got a problem. They need to get their spat over with. But these are people serving God. And one last thing is these are poor people, but they're generous. 
When I read first about the gold and silver mines, you think about this has got to be a prosperous area. You think about people who were very loyal Roman soldiers and they're being in this retirement area. There must be a lot of money there. But the church here is poor. That would probably indicate that the people here are not your ruling class, but perhaps they're servants, slaves even. Listen to 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 3. Moreover, brethren, we make known unto you the grace of God bestowed upon the churches of Macedonia, that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy abounded, and deep poverty abounded to the riches of their liberality. He describes their financial condition as deep poverty. But he says that abounded to the riches of of their liberality. These people gave according to their ability, and they gave beyond their ability. Some people do everything you want them to do, and even more. As Christians, we ought to seek to have an impact on our community. The church at Philippi was doing that. We should reflect joy in spite of our circumstances. Paul, from a Roman prison, is writing to them to say, Rejoice! He has done that in their presence when he sang praises in that Philippian prison. A lot of it's perspective. We should be ready to answer the question that was asked of Paul and Silas. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And then as you teach further, one must be baptized for the remission of their sins. If you'll open your songbook now, we're going to sing this invitation song. If you need to become a child of God... We urge you to do that, encourage you to do that. If you are a Christian who needs to come back home to God, we encourage you to respond as together we stand and sing.